0: Once upon a time, four words that conjure up emotions of grandeur, fairy tales filled with princesses and mighty kings and valiant knights, talking animals and strange creatures, words that draw you into fanciful worlds filled with unexpected twists and turns, Stories that stimulate our imaginations and draw us away from the sadness and darkness of the world around us, and whisk us away to worlds of joy and laughter and happiness, and for which always finish with a happily ever after. Once upon a time, for words you will never read in sacred scripture, why? Is because there's no princess or king? No. There are both princesses and kings. Is it because there's no talking animals? No. Of course, there's a few of those. Is it because the story isn't filled with unexpected twists and turns? Or because it doesn't stimulate our imaginations? No, none of these then why do you never find a story in Scripture that begins once upon a time? Well, Simply put, it's because the Bible is not a fairy tale, but a historic reality. It's a true story. And you don't begin true stories with once upon a time. You begin with, this is what happened, and this is how it happened, and and it was wonderful and glorious. Well, friends, we're going to think this morning about this particular idea. That the Bible isn't a fairy tale, a collection of made-up stories and myths. But rather, it is a, a record of historical truth. Events that really happened in time and space People that were real, just like as, as real as the people around you today with the sorrows and the joys that you have. Real human beings created by God and for His glory. This is, in fact, who Peter's writing to a congregation that's really not really dissimilar than ours, a, a congregation made up of Christians. Good thing, right? Uh, We should have churches filled with Christians. But but this particular congregation, as we know, that Peter's writing to, is a congregation that has been plagued with false ideas. Uh, Particularly false ideas about holiness, God's judgment, and the return of Christ. Those really big things that they were struggling with. Uh, The holiness, the godliness that should be evident in the Christian life. Uh, The judgment of God, that God actually will judge sin in reality. And the literal return of Christ. As Peter nears his death, he takes up this letter to write them as a way of reminding them of some of the things they already knew. This is what we considered last week. Really the purpose of Peter's writing is to remind the church of things they already know. Remind them that they are not to grow weary in pursuing holiness. But they are to give themselves daily to the pursuit of godliness in their lives. They were to pursue a virtuous living as they prepared for entrance into the eternal kingdom. Well, this is what Peter writes in verse 11. For in this way, that is by living a virtuous life, a life filled with godliness and Christ-likeness, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is our godliness as we pursue that readies us for the celestial city. Our life here is a preparation, not merely to get through this world, but in preparation for the next world. For the world that God has prepared for his people. This in no way is to be understood as a works righteousness. We considered very clearly that God does not save by our own righteousness, by our own godliness. But the godliness that, that we produce is the fruit of the healthy tree. A tree that's been born again. A tree that's been given new life. And it was in this context, uh, about the grace of God that's made evident in the life of fruitful Christians, of godly Christians, uh, that Peter writes uh, to really confront these false teachers. These false teachers had clearly come in to dissuade them in their pursuit of holy living. Uh, these false teachers seem to say it's not really important how you live. It just matters that you know Jesus and you you know prayed prayers and you've done those kind of Jesus things. Then you're fine. How you live really doesn't matter. The reason it doesn't matter is because God is not a judge. He's not a God of wrath. God will not judge you. Oh, God is love and he accepts you as you are. And it really doesn't matter who you are, or how you live. Oh, well, after all, God will never judge you. More than that, they taught that that Jesus isn't coming again. As we understand, the judgment of God and Jesus' second coming are one and the same event. Jesus is coming again to judge the world, both the living and the dead. Uh, Both those of us who are alive and those of us who are dead. Uh, Jesus Christ is coming again. And so, of course, if you know, you're you're really not wanting people to live holy lives and, and you want to teach them to live however they want, well, you need to remove the coming of Christ. You need to set aside the second coming of Christ and say that Jesus isn't coming again. Silly. No, you're just going to die and go to heaven. It was here in the context of these kind of ideas that Peter wants to set clear in their minds and in ours that no, there is. A standard by which godly people are to live. Uh, there is a standard in which God's people are to pursue. Yes, it is not our. It is not ultimately the ticket, if you will, to heaven. Our godly living is the is the means, if you will, uh, to display God's glory. And so Peter takes up to write this morning. And so, if you have your Bibles open, uh, we're going to consider again Second Peter chapter one and verse sixteen. 16 through 21. By way of just introduction, this is uh, we're going to take a break from Second Peter, or uh, yeah, Second Peter, for a few weeks. Set it aside. We're going to have a particular sermon on communion next week, and then two guest preachers over those weeks, and then we'll pick up later in February Second Peter again. Second Peter this morning though, chapter one and verse 16. For we did not follow clever, cleverly devised myths. When we may known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for he received honor for when he received honor and glory from God, the father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention to as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is Peter's point here? i am tried to summarize it in this way. Christians must pursue godly living because Jesus is coming again in power and glory to judge the world. In other words, your future destiny depends upon your present living. If your future destiny, it doesn't matter how you live today, uh, then the second coming of Christ is meaningless. If how you live today it doesn't matter for the next day or the future day, well, then clearly we can understand that it really doesn't matter how we live. But what Peter hopes to accomplish from these verses is to convince the church that the second coming of Christ is the motivation to holiness. All of the New Testament authors do the same thing. Paul encourages the Corinthians to holiness by casting it in light of the second coming. Uh, John in 1 John says you must be ready for the Lord's return. You don't want to be caught unexpectedly. And even Jesus himself teaches God's people in the great Olivet Discourse that you must pursue holiness in preparation for that great day. As we've said often, only holy people go to heaven. And so we must figure out what kind of holiness must we have. And we must live in light. Of this goal. And so Peter offers for us in this short passage. Two reasons why we should believe that Jesus is coming again in power and glory. Why you should believe. Why you should be convinced this morning. And I hope to show you that perhaps by your reckless living. You do not believe that Jesus is coming again. For if you believed that Jesus was coming again to judge the world. That should transform the way you live. That should change the way you approach today and tomorrow and the next. It should transform what you give yourself to in your daily life, how you do your work, how you love your spouse, how you go about the day-to-day activities from shopping at the grocery store to driving down the street. Everything should be cast in light of eternity and not the temporal not the world before you. And so this morning, Peter offers us two reasons why you should be convinced that Jesus is coming again. First, you should believe Jesus is coming again because of eyewitness testimony. You should believe that Jesus is coming again because eyewitnesses are going to testify before you today. To convince you. And then second, you should believe Jesus is coming again because God says so. Because God says so. First, we see here in verses 16 through 18, Peter seeks to convince the church that we must trust that Jesus is coming again because of eyewitness testimony. In verses 16 through 18, we see Peter appealing to those who were present at the Mount of Transfiguration. In verse 16, we see Peter begins by saying, listen, we do not follow fairy tales, but we tell you facts. Uh, we did not come to you with a bunch of fanciful stories, a bunch of myths and made-up things. We didn't come to you uh, with something that we made up. Peter begins by offering the up really what seems to be the false teacher's main accusation against the apostles. They're just telling you stories. They're just telling you fairy tales. They're not telling you what really happened. This is what the false teachers were telling the church, like the apostles. They're just making this all up. Jesus isn't coming again. Jesus isn't, you know, vindictive. He's not going to come and judge. Jesus is is love. He's kind. He's good. He's all of these things. And and so they, so Peter begins by saying, "Listen, when we came to you, when when the gospel was first brought to you, and I don't think Peter implies here that he planted this church. Oh, I the plural we there, perhaps." Of, applies to the apostles, the apostolic witness. This is the similar way John uses the, the plural in 1 John when he says, this is which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and a touch with our hands concerning the word of life. John appeals the we there, and John is the apostolic witness. And so Perhaps Peter here is appealing again to the apostolic witness, that we, the apostles, we, when we planted this church, when we sent out missionaries, we did not send them out with fairy tales, stories made up to suit our own twisted minds, but rather, we did, we told you the truth. Peter, in other words, is saying, I didn't, we didn't make this stuff up. If you really think about it, it would be really hard to manufacture the level of stories and connections between scripture. The interconnections between all of the stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament. All of the interconnected stories. All of the depth of the stories. The the fact that as Paul appeals to 500 witnesses to the resurrection. You know, it's really hard to get like four or five people to agree on a story. Let alone 500 people to agree on what they saw. And Peter says, listen, we're not, we not—we didn't make this stuff up. We didn't, this isn't some kind of fanciful myth that we sat around and, and concocted in Jerusalem. But it's based on the eyewitness testimony of myself and the other apostles. It's hard to argue with eyewitness testimony, isn't it? Though eyewitnesses can be wrong at many times, that's why in Jewish tradition and context, it was always based on the witness of two or more, or even three was the best. Uh, Jewish law would never convict someone based on just one witness. It had to be two or more. And as you'll see in a moment here, Peter employs the same thing because as you'll see, there's more than one witness mentioned here to who Jesus is. And so Peter says, I know that it's true because I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. As we heard earlier, as Nathan read, we're going to see that again in a moment. Peter witnessed it. He saw it. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. In quite a surprising way, Peter here appeals not to Jesus' ascension. He doesn't appeal to some sermon that Jesus taught. He doesn't even appeal to the Olivet Discourse in order to teach the congregation that Jesus is coming again. Did you think about it, if if, if Peter was going to appeal to something that Jesus taught, well, surely the Olivet Discourse would be that place because that's the text that Jesus lays out the future, where Jesus lays out the, the return of the Son of Man when He comes in power and glory. But here, Peter appeals to the Mount of Transfiguration. He appeals to that story where Peter, James, and John were carried up to the mountain with, Peter, with, with Jesus and where Jesus was transfigured before them. What Peter witnessed on that that mountain was a prologue or prelude to the return of Christ. Peter saw the unveiled majesty of Jesus Christ. The veil of Jesus' power and glory was removed and he beheld Jesus in all of his majesty. Notice here in the text how many times Peter uses that word majesty majesty, the beauty and transcendence of God. In verse 16, he says that we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because we were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ's majesty. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw His glory. And then look at verse 17. When the voice spoke from heaven, it was the voice of the majestic glory. Glory. The majestic God was revealed to Peter. He got a glimpse of the eternal and it transformed him forever. He knew that Jesus was coming again in power and glory because he saw it. What he got was a picture not merely of the present but of the future. He got a picture, a glimpse of the majestic glory. Of God, but it wasn't only what he heard. Or excuse me, what he saw. It was also what he heard. Was it not? Look at verse seventeen. He heard a voice from heaven saying, "This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the eternal Son of God." That voice, the voice of the Father, spoke. This is my son. So so Peter here is appealing to a kind of a twofold witness. Not only is Peter witnessing to what he saw, but you're hearing eyewitness testimony from God the Father. God the Father is speaking and saying, that's my son and here is his glory. Let me show you who my son is. Peter saw the scepter of power and authority in the hand of Jesus. We're going to see in a moment, uh, most likely what's alluded here is Psalm 2. That great prophetic psalm is fulfilled at the Mount of Transfiguration. A foreshadow of the return of Christ. But let's go and see for ourselves first in in Mark chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. And uh, we heard from Luke's account earlier, and so I thought it fitting to turn to Mark, because Mark relies on Peter's recollection to write his gospel. Mark was Peter's secretary who helped compile these stories of Christ. And so let's hear from what Peter remembers from that day. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Mark Chapter Nine and verse One, and Jesus said to them, "Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power now i 'm going to pause for a moment and, and make sure you understand why i'm interpreting this passage the way i 'm interpreting Second Peter. the reason why I believe. That what Peter saw on the Mount of Transfiguration was the second coming of Christ is because Jesus tells us in verse 1 that that is what's going to happen. He tells the disciples that are gathered there, and there was more than just the 12 disciples. Uh, there were many more. But Jesus says, listen, there are some standing here that are going to be eyewitnesses of the return of Christ. That are going to see my glory. And he's not referring to some future generation. He's referring here to Peter, James, and John. For after six days Jesus took him with him, Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transformed or transfigured before them. He was metamorphosed before him. His body was changed and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared with him Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to him, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what he was saying, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus prepares them for what they're going to see on that mountain. They're going to see the majestic glory of Jesus. They're going to see his power and glory on display. And friend, I wonder this morning, does this eyewitness account convince you that Jesus is coming again? Does this eyewitness account from Peter, a fisherman called by Jesus, this is his eyewitness account written down by Mark in 2 Peter, he's appealing to this story. Do you believe that he saw? Do you believe what what God said of His Son? He is the Eternal One. He is the one whom has power and glory. Brothers and sisters, does Peter's argument give you confidence and encouragement to know this morning that Jesus is coming again? Uh, that Jesus said He promised that He was coming again? And that Jesus will fulfill His promise Does it cause you to stand in awe of wonder at the glory of Christ? The awe and terror that they witnessed that day? Mark tells us that they were terrified at what they saw. They were terrified as they looked upon the face of that majestic God, Jesus Christ. As they saw the splendor and beauty, they trembled. They trembled in His sight. The holiness of God is what motivates us to holiness. The majestic glory of God is what motivates us to pursue godly living. That is who we desire to be like. To be like Christ. To reflect His glory in our lives. And so, when we live holy lives, when we pursue godliness, we reflect His glory. The glory that was revealed on that mountain. Does it change you to know That what they witnessed that day changed them. That when you behold the glory of God, it changes you. It does something to you. It doesn't keep you the same. Friends, God's Word will never fail. God's Word is true and it is trustworthy and you can depend upon it. You can give your life to these promises that God gives us. As Christians, we must be persuaded that Jesus' return is not a mere fairy tale. That when you are trusting that Jesus is coming again, you're not depending upon blind faith. But upon the testimony of those who saw and witnessed all of it. You are trusting in eyewitness testimony. No no different than a jury trust in the the, the testimony of those before the judge. So you are trusting, not blindly, but assuredly in the witness of the apostles. Well, Peter goes on then in verses 19-21 through to offer us then a second reason why you should be convinced that Jesus is coming again In power and glory. The second reason we see in verses 19 through 20 is that God says so. Simply put, God says Jesus is coming again. In verses 19 through 20, we see here the prophetic word more firmly confirmed. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention to as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter offers here a second reason. He turns to the apostolic interpretation of prophecy. He says that through the apostolic teaching, they confirm that Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, And that he is coming again. And so as you think about what Peter appeals to in his first sermon ever in Acts chapter 2. Is that Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. And so he's saying listen. Jesus testified to us. He Uh, We saw his miracles, we saw what he did, and we are testifying to you today that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And in this passage, as we think about, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. We think about what Peter is appealing to specifically in this text. What comes to mind is Psalms chapter 2. In Psalm 2, we are told in this prophetic psalm of David about a king who would one day come and rule. No one ever thought, David himself did not think that this was about him, but rather it pointed to someone greater. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. That psalm is a prophetic future of the return of Christ when He will come with power and glory to defeat His enemies, to destroy all of God's enemies. And what Peter is saying Uh, saying to us this morning is that the Mount of Transfiguration was a foreshadow of the return of Christ. And when God spoke there, when He said, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, He is saying that Psalm 2 is being fulfilled before your eyes. That I am setting up My anointed One as King over the cosmos who shall rule you and who shall judge you. And so what we see is just a simple example of the foreshadow. Some uh, Isaiah 42 would be another. We don't have time to look at that today, but, but maybe, maybe this afternoon you could look at Isaiah 52. And, and similar language is used there. That foreshadow. There's many others. And I don't think Peter is narrowly just picking these two. But what we understand all of the apostles to teach is that all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Therefore, because prophecy has been confirmed, Peter says, you would do well to pay attention to it. If Jesus says he's coming again, if he prophesies that he's coming again, you better do well to pay attention to it, he says, right? That it's that the word of God, that these prophetic words are like a lamp shining in a dark place, it's a spiritual flashlight leading you in this dark world. And so we must not cast their teaching aside, but use it as a light to lead us towards godliness. If you would see your life as a journey through darkness for which you need a guide to get to the end, well then the apostles teaching, Peter says, is that guide. It is that flashlight that gets you through this dark world. And so, as the Lord's return is delayed, God's people need light to lead them. And the apostles are reminding us this morning that we must give ourselves to their teaching lest we go astray. And so, Peter offers here a further reason why we must pay attention to Scripture. Look at verse 21, or verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no, one, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In short, Peter says, listen, you must listen to Scripture and listen to our teaching because we do not speak of our own authority, but with the authority of God. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. And so Peter says, knowing this first of all, that no Prophecy of Scripture came came up with their own interpretation. That is, the prophets didn't have their own interpretation, nor did the apostles have their own interpretation. That is, the interpretations that they are giving us about Jesus and who he is, is ones that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. So that what we write, he says, and what we understand about these passages Concerning Jesus, all of this is from God and not us. In other words, he's appealing to a higher authority than himself. He's saying, no, my interpretation of the times is not my own interpretation, but that of God himself. That's why he goes on in verse 21 to say what he says, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. No prophecy, no Old Testament Scripture, no New Testament Scripture was ever generated out of the will of man. That does not mean that men did not write the Scriptures. No, God used men, but when these men spoke, God spoke. God used their words and their voices, uh, their inflections and styles to communicate His eternal truth. This is what Paul teaches us in that well-known passage in 2 Timothy 3. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture, Paul says, both old and new is God-breathed. That is, it comes from the very mouth of God. God spoke through His Word. We deny the, the teaching that the Bible contains the Word of God. That is heresy. The Bible does not contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. That's a very tricky distinction. Because if the Bible merely, let me me set that straight in your mind. If the Bible merely contains the Word of God, that means that some of it isn't the Word of God. But if it is the Word of God, that means every participle and every period is inspired by God. That God put where He wanted all of those. And so what we believe, what this congregation affirms, is something called verbal plenary inspiration. What that means, verbal, all of the language of Scripture the choice of words, the grammatical structure, the syntactical structures of the sentence, you know why the verb is at the beginning and not the end of the sentence, all of the items included and excluded, everything about the language both of the Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek, we believe is inspired by God. He chose every one of them exactly how he wanted them. We also believe plenary meaning all. As I just mentioned, all of scripture not parts. Friends, that's what the Southern Baptist Convention really went through in the 1960s. Um, In the 1960s, a group of liberals uh, began to teach that not all of the Bible is inspired, that there are parts of it that are not God's Word. And, And, well, when you begin to do that, we all know that's a slippery slope because then we can begin to say, well, we can set that aside. Oh, let's set this aside. And, friends, that is what these false teachers were doing. They were setting aside the call to godly living. They were setting aside the, the, the standard of holiness. They were watering it down and saying, listen, God isn't going to judge you. Jesus isn't coming again. It's okay how you live. You can live however you want. But friend, when we take the Bible as the Word of God and not the Word of man, well, that means something. That means that it is authoritative. It means that it comes from the mouth of God. And so when we read Peter's words here, we are not reading just merely Peter's words. We are reading as if it is coming from the mouth of Jesus Christ Himself. Scripture is God's word to man. A revelation of who God is and who man is and about this world that we live in. And if this is true, if this is God's Word, fully inspired, inerrant, and infallible, then we would do well to pay attention to it, would we not? If this has been inscribed by the pen of God, then we would do well to listen. And so Peter exhorts us in this way. For the Bible is authoritative over life and doctrine. The sacred scriptures tell us what is right and what is wrong. Brothers and sisters, this, this book gives us moral clarity in a very confused culture. It gives us moral boundaries that our culture has cast away. It gives us what is right and what's wrong, what's up and what's down. Only scripture can offer us clarity. When the culture is confused. Or as the Westminster Confession of Faith in Article 1-4 writes, the divines write this, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. The Scriptures come to us with a sense of weight and authority. This is why Peter says you better pay attention to what we write. This is why you better pay attention to not only your New Testament, but your Old Testament. Because it is the Word of God. This means that when you read the Bible, when you open it, it should do something more than inform you should be more than just a history lesson about Israelites and their nomadic reign roaming around. It should tell you something, and it should ultimately transform you. Brothers and sisters, the Bible seeks to inform us so that it will transform us, so that it will change us. Brothers and sisters, we must not be like the man who looked at the mirror. Who looked intently at the mirror, James tells us, and then went away forgetting what he looked like. Brothers and sisters, how often do we read the Bible? We see there the mirror of our own life. We see the brokenness of our own hearts. We see our desperate need for a Savior. Walk away unchanged. Walk away untransformed. And we must approach these eternal words of Christ and allow them to shape us, allow them to mold us and to transform us, to clarify for us what is right and what is wrong. And in this particular context, we need to be convinced of the Lord's return. Sure, people are going to laugh. You really believe Jesus is coming again? You really believe in judgment? You really believe dead people are like going to get out of graves? You really believe? That's silliness. No one believes that anymore. I think just as much today, we can undermine our belief in the Lord's return by not heeding the warnings we see here. Particularly the warning to godliness. Brothers and sisters, trust me. Trust me when I tell you that it would be well, it would do well for you in your pursuit of holiness in preparation for that day. There will be no regret on that day for time spent growing in godliness. When you stand before the transcendent and holy God, you will not regret a moment of prayer time or Bible reading or discipleship or discipling or hearing sermons or being here on the Lord's Day. You will not regret, but you will regret wasted hours spent profiting in this world rather than storing up treasures for the next. You will regret those wasted hours being entertained to death in our culture rather than spending time in the Scriptures. Spending time in prayer. Friends, it's not a question of whether we have the time. If I told you I would pay you $1,500 uh, to come and meet with me and we're going to read the scripture, I bet you you will find the time to meet with me. <laughs> Friends, what you gain from reading the scriptures and following them is far more valuable than $1,500. It is an eternity. It is a matter of heaven or an eternity in hell. And we would do well to pay attention to them as a light shining in a dark place. For there comes a day that the Lord will return. There comes a day when the morning star will rise in our hearts. As, as much as the star rises every day, a reminder, a testament. A witness. Every day the sun comes up. A a witness. A reminder. Jesus will one day be in that sky. And he will one day come again. May each of us take sober account of our lives. Lest we too perish. Brothers and sisters, we may be tempted for various reasons to doubt the return of the Lord. We may trust that God has spoken a word of promise in Scripture that the Savior will return and, and then give ourselves to doubt. But brothers and sisters, may we give ourselves to pursuing godly living because of the return of Christ. Let that be the proper motive in our lives. Not to earn salvation, but to prepare ourselves for the bridegroom when he ushers congregation before the marriage supper of the lamb and we are robed in robes of righteousness holy and perfect and there we are perfect before him that is what we aspire and so may we give ourselves to live in light of the lord's imminent return by pursuing godliness in our lives today let's pray Father in heaven. we are in all of your majesty and glory. Do pray today that a better sermon is heard than the one preached. Pray the Spirit would give life where there is death. I pray those that are struggling to walk in repentance would be given the, the faith to the trust that the gospel is sufficient to save. But there is no shame, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus as we look inwardly at the filthiness of our own hearts, our inability to shake off the old man, we can be discouraged. We can feel weak and helpless, Father. But Lord, let us not be overwhelmed with the burdens of our own sinfulness, but trust in the promises of God. The promise that He who began a good work in us will bring us to completion. One day we will be holy as You are holy. And so we forget what lies behind. We forget about the sin of yesterday or the sin of this morning. And we strive forward to what lies ahead. To the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We strain and we fight and we persevere. And we say with uplifted heart and mind, Come Lord Jesus that we may behold your glory, power, and majesty. In your name we pray. Amen.